Well, hello, everyone. It is a joy to welcome you again to our weekly teaching time. I am excited to tell you that this will be the last time that I'll be doing this in an empty room, at least for the foreseeable future. We will resume our our corporate worship service next Sunday, August the 9th at 9.30. We look forward to seeing everyone. We'll send out another email reminder in case you missed the first one or have any questions about what the process is going to be. We will observe communion together, so we look forward to a very special time of worship next Sunday. So we're going to continue in our study of the Gospel of John. And if you will look with me in John chapter 14, our focus today is going to be on verses 7 through 14. This is part two of a message that I began last week called The Comfort of Christ. And as a way of reminder, Jesus has just finished the Lord's Supper. He has washed the feet of his disciples. He has announced that he is about to die. He will be leaving them. He has also told them that one of them would betray him, that Peter would deny him. And their lives are literally falling apart before them because, after all, for the last three plus years, they have walked with Jesus on a daily basis. They have followed him. They had depended upon him. Their lives were intricately entwined with his. They were expecting for him to inaugurate his earthly kingdom, and they were expecting to be participants in that earthly kingdom, and everything that Jesus was telling them was contrary to what they thought and wanted and expected. And so Jesus is now preparing them for not only his imminent departure, but also for the apostolic ministry that he had called them some three and a half years earlier to actually carry out. So as we looked at last week in the first six verses of chapter 14, Jesus commands them to trust in his presence. He gives them two commands, stop being troubled. Jesus understood that they were overwhelmed by the circumstances that he was sharing with them they were going to experience. He tells them to stop being overwhelmed by that. That's a clue for you and I today. No matter how difficult life's circumstances are, you and I have a choice to either choose to be overwhelmed by those things or to stop being overwhelmed by those things and to look at what he tells us as the second part of this command, and that is to believe in him. This is not a call to salvation. It is a call to continue to exercise ongoing trust in who he is and his ability to meet their needs and to provide for them all that they fear they are not going to have if he does in fact leave them as he has been telling them he will do. Secondly, in our outline, we are to trust his preparation. Jesus told them that I am going to leave and I am going to go to the Father's house. He's going to go back to heaven. And as he goes back to heaven, he is going to work to prepare a place for them. He's not going to physically construct this place, nor is he going to decorate it for them. But it is in his going through the cross, through his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, that this place in heaven is going to be prepared for those who believe in him. We will be given a dwelling place within the Father's house, and that is where our eternity is going to be. He also tells them in his preparation that there is great assurance that even though they can't follow him now, they will be able to join him later. That's the privilege that you and I have as Christians 
Christians, as the children of God, is that even though that we don't see Him now, we will one day be joined to Him. And when we are joined to Him, we will be joined to Him for all eternity in the Father's house, the place that Jesus is personally preparing for us. He also told them to trust His proclamation. Jesus said that He is the way. He is the pathway to the place of God. He told them that He was going to leave them. They wanted to know where He was going and why they couldn't come. And He told them that I am going back to heaven, that I have created the way for you. I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the life. And Jesus and Jesus alone is the one that makes the preparation for us to be able to have, to have access with God. There is no other way, no other means, no other expression of religion that will enable us to be with the Father except through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So now today we're going to look at verses 7 through 14 in John chapter 14 and finish out this section that I'm calling the comfort of Christ. So follow along with me beginning in chapter and verse 7. Jesus says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe in me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Verse 12, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will also do, and greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So as we continue in our outline, we're looking now at number four. We are to trust his person. Jesus says in verse 7, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. So this is a bit of a rebuke that Jesus is speaking to Thomas who has uttered this question, but not just to Thomas, but to all of them. What we can't see is that in the Greek, that word you, the pronoun, is in the plural form. And so Jesus, knowing the hearts of his disciples, hearing the question asked by Thomas, is addressing each and every one of them. We need to pause and consider here exactly what Jesus is saying. Jesus says, if you had known me, you would have known the Father. He asks them, have you not been paying attention to all that I have said, to all that I have done, to all that you have been witnesses of? Jesus is saying he is equal to the Father. If you have known Jesus, then you have known the Father. His claim is nothing short of a claim to full deity. He is God incarnate, God 
in the flesh. There is no other way that we can understand these words. They are not symbolic. They are not figurative. They are literal. Jesus is claiming to be equal to the Father. This is the reason that Jesus is able to say that I am the way and the truth and the life because He is God. He's not a good man as many have claimed Him to be. If He were just a good man and not God incarnate, then the claims that He has made about Himself were false and that would make Jesus out to be a liar. He's not just a prophet as many claim that He is. If He were just a prophet, then what He has prophesied about Himself of being in the Father and being one with the Father would be untrue and it would make Him delusional. He's either not telling the truth about who He is, He is delusional about who He is, or He is exactly who He is claimed to be He is in the Father, and the Father is in Him. If you know the Son, then you know the Father. He is God. He is the only way. He is the only truth. And He is the only life. Jesus says, from now on, you have seen Him, you have seen the Father, and have seen, you have, excuse me, you have known Him, the Father, and you have seen Him, meaning the Father. Why? Because you have known me. Jesus says, you have known the Father because you have known me. Jesus says, you have seen the Father because you have seen me. Jesus is the complete and the perfect revelation of God. Paul would write, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Colossians 1, verses 15 and 16, that He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That word image means exact representation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him, and for him. There is no mistake about what Jesus is saying that if you have known him, you've known the Father. If you have seen him, you have seen the Father. So he is either who he claimed to be or he is not. There is no middle ground. There is no straddling of the fence. You either believe that He is or you don't believe that He is. And by the way, what we believe determines our eternal destination. Now as Jesus is having this conversation with the disciples, as He utters this rebuke to them, He understands that they don't understand what it is He has just said. They really wouldn't be able to understand this until after His death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. But through the words that Jesus speaks, He says this in such a way that He expects that there would be some ongoing trust, some sign of faith in who He is, even though they are incapable of fully understanding the ramifications of what it is He is saying. They want more proof. Verse 8, Philip said to Him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus has just said, if you have known Him, you've known the Father. If you have seen Him, you've seen the Father. And Philip says, show us the Father. Now, Philip is expressing the thoughts of not just himself, 
but of the whole group. He says, show us the Father. The indirect knowledge of God through the life and the ministry and the relationship with Jesus is not enough. What Philip is asking for is a spectacular display. He wants to see God. He wants to see God in the way that Jacob saw God and wrestled with Him. He wants to see God in the way Moses saw God in the burning bush. He wants to see God in the way Isaiah saw Him when the train of His robe filled the temple. He wants to see God in the way Ezekiel saw God when the heavens were opened and he saw the visions of God. Philip wants to see the Father, show me the Father in all of His glory, and that will be enough for us. Now there's two things about Philip's request that we need to see here. Number one is this. Seeing God would calm his fears. That's basically what Philip is saying here. I've heard what you've said, I've seen what you've done, and yeah, I kind of want to believe everything that you're saying, but if you'll just show me the Father, then that will calm my fear. What this, is, what this exposes is the need of those who lack faith and the revelation of God to see something else, to see something more, and if they can just see that thing, then they will truly believe and their calm, their fears would be calmed. This is exactly like the Jewish leaders and the superficial followers who flocked around Jesus. They wanted to see an external sign. They wanted to see something more, something literal, something physical that would actually prove what it is Jesus is saying. And isn't that just how it can be for you and I today? We need an external sign. We need something outside of the revelation of Christ, something outside of our, our experiential knowledge with Christ to bolster our faith. I think about Gideon, who was told by God, and, and Gideon said, yeah, just, just show me some proof. I'm going to throw down the fleece and make it wet all around the fleece and keep the fleece dry. And that's exactly what God did. But that still wasn't enough. The next day, he said, I'm going to throw out the fleece and now I want the fleece to be wet and I want the ground all around it to be dry. And that's exactly what God did. There is always going to be a challenge for you and I to exhibit this trust in Christ that doesn't require an external sign in order for our fears to be calmed. As you and I look at the completed revelation of Christ, as we evaluate the faithfulness of Christ in our lives, our fears should be calmed that we can take Him at His word. Now the second thing that we see in this request that Philip has made is this. What he saw in Jesus was just not enough. What a terribly sad self-indictment that Philip utters for himself and on behalf of his fellow disciples. In a sense, what Philip is saying is this. Jesus, I've heard everything that you've said. I have seen everything that you have done. But I just need something more. 
Show me this external sign that I require in order for me to have the full amount of faith that is required for me to believe that in knowing you I've known the Father, that in seeing you I have seen the Father. Show me God the Father and that will settle the unbelief in my heart. You know, for us today, with this full and complete revelation of God, with all of the experiences that we've had with God in the past, as we've been up against the wall and as God has made a way when there seemed to be no way, when God's faithful provision met all of our needs, there is this challenge within us for Him to prove again His faithfulness because our faith just isn't strong enough and our fears, our concerns, the difficulties overwhelm us. If you'll just show me one more thing, then I will believe. Then my fears will be calmed. And then I will have the kind of faith that you are expecting me to have. We doubt. We wonder. We're confused. And so we ask of God in the quietness of our hearts and sometimes in the utterance of our crying out to Him, show me, show me, prove to me that you are there, that you are in control. Well, Jesus offers up a rebuke in the face of these questions that Philip has asked of him. And so in the beginning part of verse 9, Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? And Jesus is very disappointed and their lack of faith in Him, of their inability to believe the words that He is saying to them. And in Jesus' mind, they've been with Him for more than three years. They've walked with Him and lived with Him day in and day out. They've seen everything that He has done. They've heard everything that He has taught. There's no way anybody who has walked with Jesus for that long could ever doubt the claims that He has made. And so Jesus says in verse 9, the second part of that, He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? It just doesn't fit in Jesus' mind that they could have been with Him for so long and experienced all of these things and yet require more. How could you not hear Jesus' words? How could you not see Jesus' miracles and attribute them to something other than Him being sent by God and Jesus being His agent to do God's work on the earth? How could it be explained in any other way? Jesus is simply asking the question, Do you believe Do we believe in the claims that Jesus has made about Himself? Do we believe that Jesus is in the Father and the Father is in Him? Do we believe that in our union with Christ, that we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit as Jesus has promised, that we have the faithfulness of God on our side, that God has promised to meet our needs according to His riches and glory? Do we believe in Him or do we not? Beginning verse, beginning part of verse 10a, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Either we do or we don't. If we do, then we must exercise 
faith, we must continue to show an ongoing trust in the person of Jesus Christ. If we don't, then Jesus is making an appeal to at least believe in His works. Verse 10b and 11, The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does His works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Jesus is making consideration for their incomplete faith, the weakness of their faith, by saying, I understand this is a very difficult thing for you to believe in your present state of mind, in your present spiritual condition. And even if you can't make that step of faith, Consider what you have seen the Father do during these three and a half years that you've been following me. Believe in the miracles themselves. Think about what Jesus has done in their witness. Most recently, He has raised Lazarus from the dead. He has cured countless people of sicknesses and diseases and calamities that would never ever have gone away, and they have seen these things. Withered hands and lame feet and blind eyes and deaf ears, demon-possessed individuals, and Jesus has healed them and cleansed them. How could you not believe in Him based upon the works He has done, even if you can't believe the words that Jesus speaks, that He is in the Father and the Father is in Him? Faith in Christ is not just about our salvation. Faith in Christ is essential to sustaining our Christian life. How can we ever live the Christian life to the degree that we are expected to live it, to the victory that God has made available to us, if we don't exercise ongoing trust and faith in the person of Jesus Christ. If we have faith in Him for our eternity, then shouldn't we have faith in Him for our temporary life in this world? Well, Jesus has given them plenty of evidence for their belief in Him, just as He has given us today ample evidence for our ongoing trust in who He is. On their own, the works Jesus performed should have provided them with a means of faith just as He has done for us today. We shouldn't need to see signs. We shouldn't expect the confirmation of external signs in order for us to exercise faith in Him. We should simply believe in what we already know. It should bring us great comfort to know that we can trust in the person of Christ. We can trust in His knowledge. We can trust in His sovereignty. We can trust in His control. We can trust in the faithfulness of the words that He has uttered to us because He is in the Father and the Father is in Him. So we trust in His presence, His preparation, His proclamation, His person. And now number five, we trust His power. Verse 12a, Truly, truly, I say to you, He who believes in Me, the works that I do, He will do also and greater works than these he will do. Once again, in the Gospel of John, we see this phrase, truly, truly. And what Jesus is saying is, listen very carefully. Listen very closely. This is a solemn statement. 
You need to get this. You need to understand what it is I am saying to you. And Jesus is saying, I will empower you. Now, this verse and the two verses that follow are some of the most inaccurately applied verses in all of Scripture. Now, we have to remember in context what it is Jesus is saying and what it is Jesus is doing. He says, I'm going to die. I'm going to go away. You can't join me right now, but I'm preparing a place for you. Don't be overcome by your sorrow. Continue to believe in me, even though you will not see me. Since you have known me and seen me, you have known and seen the Father. I will empower you so that you can serve me. Jesus says, you will do the works you have seen me do. Now, what does that mean? There's a way that this can be inappropriately applied to the life of the Christian. Now, Jesus' purpose in selecting the disciples was not just so they could be saved and go to heaven, but he chose them to do the work to accomplish the mission that God had set out for them to do. They were about to begin their apostolic ministry. They would turn the world upside down. And what Jesus is doing is preparing them for not only his imminent departure, but for the mission he has called them to do. They have been followers. They have been people who had lived and walked with Jesus in absolute and complete dependence upon his physical presence. He was about to go away, and so he is now assuring them of his power to be revealed in them so that they could serve him. They will serve him by doing, number one, the same kinds of works. The genuine believer will do the same kind of work that Jesus did. Now, it is true that the apostles performed miracles in order to authenticate that Jesus had sent them. And just as Jesus had performed many signs and wonders to authenticate that he was sent by God to do the works of God, God also empowered the apostles to perform these same kinds of signs and wonders to authenticate that Jesus was sending them and the things that they did would authenticate the words that they were about to say. Remember that as the book of Acts was being lived out and in the closing days of the book of Acts and all throughout that period, the apostles and others were writing out the eternal word of God as God spoke to them through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They were to be His messengers to say what Jesus wanted them to say, and they authenticated this by doing the same kinds and wonders. But the signs and wonders that the apostles did were a very small part of the kind of work that they did that would be similar to the work that Jesus did. So what was the major work that the disciples did, the apostles did, on behalf of the mission that God had sent them to do? Well, first and foremost, they told others about who Jesus is. They proclaimed and they taught 
and they lived out the truth of the gospel message. They evangelized and they discipled these new believers. As they were doing that, they loved for and cared for these people. They ministered to their needs and they demonstrated to them the love of Christ. They became, they became the hands and the feet and the voice of Jesus in the lost and in this lonely world. That was the primary mission that Jesus had sent them to do. It was the same kind of work that Jesus Himself did. So the believer will work doing all he can to demonstrate the love of God and to lead people to a saving knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ. That is the kind of work that the disciples are being called to do. That is the same kind of work that you and I are being called to do. And there are some who would make this out to mean that every Christian should have these signs and these wonders accompanying their Christian life to be able to speak in an unknown language, to be able to heal others from their physical disabilities. And I don't believe that that's what Jesus means by this. They are to do the same kind of work in loving and in preaching and in teaching and in discipling. Secondly, what Jesus says in this empowerment is they will do greater works. Now, these works are not greater in power than Jesus did, but they are greater in their extent. It doesn't mean that Jesus was able to raise people from the dead and I'm going to do something greater than that. What it means is this. Jesus never preached beyond the physical boundary of Palestine. His contact with the Gentile world was very, very limited. We saw some emphasis of that in the Gospel of John when Jesus visited the woman at the well and spent some time in that Samaritan village. But Jesus' physical presence was very limited as it didn't go out outside of the borders of Palestine. But his followers were going to reach the world with the message of salvation. Think about it like this. Jesus had a following of a couple of hundred people. In the upper room on the day of Pentecost, there were 120 people who were gathered waiting for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit who were following what Jesus had told them to do. But when Peter preached his first sermon, there were several thousands of people who were converted at Peter's message. Paul would travel the known world and evangelize and disciple and plant churches outside of the region of Jerusalem. Today, it is estimated that there are nearly 700 million evangelical Christians in the world and there are in the world some 2.4 billion individuals who claim to be followers of Christ. The disciples of Christ have done a greater work and extent than Jesus ever did because Jesus' ministry was limited in time and space by his physical presence. But the disciples of Christ, the followers of God, the children of God are worldwide doing more than Jesus did in his earthly ministry. Now, why is the exponential growth of the impact of the gospel this way? Well, because Jesus said in verse 12b, 
because I go to the Father. You see, when Jesus went to the Father, His physical presence was removed. The eventual outpouring of the Holy Spirit enabled all of God's children to minister on behalf of the risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He would go to the Father and He will send the Holy Spirit who will indwell and empower every believer to do the works of Christ. He will empower His children to do this ministry. So as you and I have the potential to be overwhelmed by our physical circumstances, does it bring any comfort for you and I to know that the power of God through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit resides in us so that we can serve Him, so that He can give us spiritual victory, so that His presence is confirmed in us, so that He can supply us with the peace that He has provided? Does that bring us any measure of comfort to know that we can trust not only in His person, but also in the power that God gives to us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? Now, last in our outline, we can trust His promise. Verse 13a and 14, Jesus says this, Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now these two verses are also very inaccurately applied to the Christian's life. Remember, Jesus is preparing them for His departure, for their apostolic ministry. His physical presence is going to be removed from them. They are going to serve Him. They are going to do the same kind of works. And Jesus told them they're going to do even greater works than He did, which means that there is going to be a huge need realized in the lives of the apostles as they live out the purpose God has called them for to be His messengers in this world. He would no longer supply their needs in His physical presence. So the disciples' fruitful service was going to be the product of their prayer. If you ask me anything according to my name, then I will do it. Now, some use these verses to mean that Jesus is going to give us anything that we ask for. Kind of like Santa Claus or the genie in the bottle. Just make a wish and I'm going to grant it for you. Notice the condition here. The condition is this. Whatever we ask for in His name. Now, this isn't a magical formula that if we just say in Jesus' name, that means that God is now obligated to give us that thing, a new car, a big house, or that private jet so we can go all around the world to quote-unquote preach the ministry, preach the gospel of Jesus. Just because we utter in Jesus' Jesus' name doesn't mean that it is actually in His name and it doesn't mean that God is obligated to provide it. So the question is, what does it mean for us to ask In Jesus' name. Well, number one, it means we are to pray according to what His name represents. What does the name of Jesus Christ 
represent. Well, if we think about what it is Jesus has just said to them, if you have known me, you've known the Father. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. All that I have said and all that I have done has been in accordance with what the Father has told me and showed me. And so we are to pray according to what His name represents. The name of Jesus represents God's spiritual kingdom and God's spiritual purposes. It's not a wish list so that we can have every physical thing that our heart desires. It's not this big eraser to remove any unwanted circumstance from our life. But the name of Jesus represents His kingdom and His purposes in this world. You know, we would do well to continually go back to the Lord's Prayer when He instructed the disciples and others in how they are to pray. We read in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9-13, through 13, Our prayers are to be focused on these things. Pray then in this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be Your name. God who lives in heaven, it is my prayer, it is my desire that Your name be glorified in all the earth. Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. You can see the scope of our prayer as it is to relate to the kingdom of God that it would be done on earth just as it is in heaven so that His name would be glorified and we are to pray for our daily bread, our daily needs. It goes on to say, Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So we are to pray about how God desires to use us and the building up of His kingdom so that His name would be glorified on the earth as it is in heaven. We are to pray about what God desires to do in us and through us as He has empowered us to serve Him. We are to pray about how we are to be conformed to His image so that our lives are closer to the image of God just as Jesus is the exact representation of the Father Himself. Our prayers are to be focused on the building up of God's kingdom and how He chooses and desires to use us in building that kingdom. Secondly, to pray in Jesus' Jesus' name means we are to pray to bring God glory. Our prayers should focus on how our lives can bring Him glory. Think about the example of Jesus. Think about the words of Jesus. All of His life was centered on one thing. It was centered on obeying the Father so that the Father would be glorified. Jesus lived with the same daily physical needs just like we do. He had the same physical demands on His life just like we do. He had the same kinds of struggles and obstacles in His life just like we do. But His life was focused on living out God's plans 
and God's purposes so that God would be glorified through his life. Now, this does not mean that we are not to pray about our physical lives. It doesn't mean that we aren't to pray for our physical needs, for our health needs, for our financial struggles, for the well-being of our loved ones. We are to pray for those things, but those things are not to be the primary and central focus of our prayers. Jesus addressed this in the same chapter of Matthew chapter 6, verses 25, and then I'm going to skip down to the end of this in verse 33. Jesus said, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? He went on to make an analogy about the plants of the earth and the birds of the air. And he concludes it with this, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Our focus is to be upon God's kingdom and God's purposes being lived out through our life, and as we are doing this, God's going to take care of our physical needs. Seek His kingdom, His righteousness, first, and all of these things will be added unto you. So our prayers are to focus on His spiritual power being lived out through our lives, spiritual victory to be exercised in our struggle with sin, Spiritual impact in a lost and lonely and desperate world around us so that God would receive glory through the lives that you and I live. God knows our needs. He knows our struggles. He knows our frailty. He knows our frustrations. And God will resolve all of these in our personal relationship with Him as we prioritize his kingdom, and his purposes in our life. Does it bring any comfort to you today to know that you can trust in his promises? You know, God has made promises to us that he would empower us, that he would strengthen us, that he would glorify his name through us. But we tend to get focused on the promises of God that make us feel better we're in the midst of difficult times. God's Word absolutely does that, and we should take great joy in the provision that He has made for us. But our primary focus in the lives that we live, our primary focus when we are sensing being overwhelmed by our troubles and our difficulties Our primary focus is to be upon living out his purposes and building up his kingdom in our lives so that God will be brought glory. I believe that as we do that, the physical challenges that we face will be brought into a better perspective. We will have a spiritual clarity seeing God do the work that he desires to do in us perhaps in a way that we did not ask for or welcome or enjoy, but his purpose is to make us more like his son so that as we serve him, he will receive glory. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we give you thanks that in all that we face, we can trust you. We can trust in 
not only who you are and we can not only trust in what you have done, but we can trust in a God who loves and cares and desires to meet our every need. Not necessarily to remove the circumstances, not necessarily to create a a way of life where there is no difficulty, but to be sufficient in all that we face in this world. God, I believe with all my heart that just as you prepared these disciples to serve you, you prepare us to serve you in the same way. I pray that we would continue to exercise our faith in you, to continue to show an ongoing trust in you, so that we would not lose heart or lose hope, but that we continue to march forward with an unwavering desire and and commitment to see your name brought glory through our lives. Father, thank you that as we continue to go through the Gospel of John, we will see all the provision that you have made for us, all the desires you have for us, your children, the body of Christ, and experiencing great victory in the lives that we live. We give you thanks for who you are. We give you thanks that we can trust in you completely. We pray that you would help us to do that better than we have. We give you thanks and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.